introduce uh, our guest this evening. So he's, Freya is his fifth book. He's a recovering journalist, <laughs> which I think we'll talk about in a, in a later, later on. About book. Um, and he wrote his first book after judging the Mandela Prize. I can only imagine that the trial of reading that many books I think, God, I can do this better. <laughs> actually, having looked at the books that were on the, on the up for judging that year, I think he has. But anyway, please join me in welcoming Anthony Quinn. Oh, so nice to see you. I'm so, you? I'm so, I'm just, you. I'm just saying, so happy about the books that you've chosen. Well, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> it's a complete pleasure. When I, in actual fact, it was when. I read your first book, Curtain, well not your first book, so your fourth book, I and mean, the first one that I come across, Curtain Call, that I started to kind of look at Joe Pickering, who's your publicist, and very beadily and go, I just really want to go to the books that here you are, which is great. So before we get stuck into the books that have built you, I'd like to talk a little bit, or like get you to talk a little bit about Freya. Um, at the very end of the book, Nat Fain, one of my favourite characters, says to Freya, it's funny how some characters Mere figments on the page never really die in our hearts, heads or our hearts. And Freya turns up first in Curtain Court. And I just wondered, is that, is that how you felt about her? Um, Freya was, yeah, she's a 12-year-old um, schoolgirl in, in Curtain Court, which is my, my fourth book as well, I'm saying. Um, and she just sort of stuck with me in a way that no other character has in a, in a book before. I've never wanted to write a sort of sequel. Um, and I wondered how she might progress um, as a grown-up. Uh, she's rather bolshy, she's rather sweary, she's outspoken, difficult, capable of terrible charmlessness, but, but she became very real to me, actually. Um, and she had a good war, uh, she, come, she comes out of the Wrens, and she's got a place at Oxford that she's basically been delaying because of the war. Um, and she finds her life rather strangely unexciting now that the war's over, because the war gave her a great sense of purpose. Um, she's a sort of can-do person. Um, she didn't like the war, but she liked the advantages and the responsibility the war gave her. And now that she goes to Oxford in the first part of Freya, she's slightly at a loss because the excitements of 1943 to 45 are no longer there and she doesn't feel like anything more is at stake mm. in her life. So that's her problem at the beginning of the war. And, and it's a problem that continues, isn't it? Because it's not just that she's had that taste of independence, I guess, like many, many women that um, were mobilised in the war. Um, at the sense of opportunities, the gate really closing down for women. That's right, that, yeah. I mean, as a, as a, you know, she had this um, amazing opportunity um, in, in the Rens, as a lot of, a lot of women did. Um, she worked in you know, the Atlantic shipping, um, plotting courses for the Navy and for the Mercantile Navy. Um, and those opportunities just narrow, and she's basically at a stage in, in life, in British society, when the opportunities were being closed down again. So she's had this great freedom, these wonderful times, uh, and suddenly she's too far ahead of them. She's basically somebody who uh, doesn't really, she's traveling at a different speed from the rest of society, um, She loves her own life, she loves her own freedom, but she can't really use it anymore in, in uh, peacetime. And she, I mean, she, and she wants to be a journalist. I mean, she wants to be a, she wants to be a journalist. A journalist yeah. and, well. and that is that is essentially the story of the book and how she tries to reassert her own independence and and get back those freedoms that she had during the war. But she finds it, as it turns out, um, trickier than uh, she uh, she'd expected. And that, and that's the beating heart of the, of the of the book. And everybody has their copy. If you don't, if you for some reason haven't got your copy. Uh, let me know because I've got some. I can see that some chairs there. It is one of those books I absolutely could not put down. So I'm, I'm quite. I'm very. I'm looking forward to everybody reading it. Um, and actually, speaking of the the 50s, shall we come on to the complete mold? Has anybody read? The, has anybody 
know the complete world's work? Because <laughs> we were, I was thinking that for, for people, some people, this this, this marvelous book might might not be might not be well known, and it's a it's about a boy called Morsworth who goes to a really hideous prep school in the fifties called Saint Custard's, and it's written written by him. Now I suspect that Saint Francis Xavier in uh, College for Boys. College for Boys wasn't wasn't. I was a Catholic grammar school. school, and it was about honestly about twenty years after. It was, it was not the 1950s. And, um, and possibly a <laughs> light years away from, um, from, uh, from St. Custard's as well. Um, when I was a kid, I wasn't a great reader. So well, any parents in the room can take part in my story because I, I, I love the Beatles, I love football, and I love drawing, most of all. Drawing is what I was obsessed with. Um, my Dad was uh, around a stationery company, uh, so the Quint household was never short of And I loved, um, I had these for my birthday, a wonderful set of rotaring pens, which are architects and drafts and use these very fine nibbed pens. And I would just spend hours and hours on our kitchen table just drawing uh, anything, really, uh, copying things. And I noticed on my mum's shelf uh, um, a book called Down at School by Jeffrey Williams and Ronald Searle, and I picked it off. And I just thought these amazing, spindly, gothic illustrations were just magical and sort of unrepeatable, and you just didn't know what was going on. So in fact, I just spent my whole time copying Ronald Searle's pictures, sort of exact replicas of them with these <laughs> tiny little nipped ends. And it wasn't until about sort of three or four years later that I actually started reading them and finding out about so you came to the illustrations because I think totally. that's how that's how that book. Yeah. It kind of that's how the book happened, doesn't it? Because I didn't the Searle had the drawings first, and then I thought it was the other way around. Right. I thought I thought Willens wrote it, and Searle didn't want to to do the book about. Oh, because he just he just done Centrinians. Exactly, right? he'd done Centrinians, and he was fed up with it. But as soon as he read Geoffrey Willens' prose and his great jokes, he just said, "Fine, I'm going to do it." And and they're just the most wonderful. Match, aren't they? I mean, it's that, the illustrations, and you can't separate them. They are so. He's got a whole row of masters, and yeah. uh, you're trying to spot. Did you try to spot which which teacher you had in there? And I mean, I, I all think sorts. All yeah, videos. I mean, they're just they are wonderfully grotesque. Um, I've never, I've never, never been to public school. I didn't know anyone who'd been to public school. But as soon as I'd read um, Molesworth. I sort of knew exactly what a public school was. I could smell what a public school was. You know, it was sort of chalk and boys' farts and you know, sort of wet socks and it was just so perfectly done. Yes, exactly. And it was, it was evoked in this one, in these wonderfully spindly lines, but also these terrific sort of parodic, exactly um, sort of. Uh, just so clever the kind of language that he used. It wasn't just misspelling, was it? It was actual. He would he would make jokes that probably wouldn't be got nowadays. So um, there's, there's one where um, he's talking about um, the, uh, the gerund. You know, a gerund. A gerund is led back into captivity. Um, a gerund sort of. Um, chases down some peaceful pronouns. And you know, if people don't know what grammar is, they're not going to get it. Um, maybe that's the problem. This book apparently, according to Helen, is out of print now. And yet, it's so much a part of our childhood. I think, I mean, I think to be honest, because the Complete Molesworth is a collection of five books, isn't yeah. it? And I think, in fairness, it's the Complete Molesworth is out of print. And I think the Downward School, Back in the Jump Again, with the Atoms, and how to be taught or or available. Well, that's good. I'm pleased to hear that. It is. It's like, so, when, so when did you when you actually started reading it? What did what did you think? You know, you, that work pictures could have words, and words themselves would become pictures. Um, I, I they they seemed an, a, a wonderful match for one another. Um, you know, you can't. Yeah, I think it, I think that's terribly English. I don't think it, 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 a foreigner would have a, would have trouble understanding why the greatest expression of English chagrin is cheers, cheers. Um, but once you've got cheers, cheers as being as being once a you've got cheers, cheers, a swizz and a swindle, you can never it never goes out of your exactly. head. Exactly, and and in fact, it, it's almost like a sort of secret handshake. I remember meeting um, 
somebody just after I came down for college at a dinner party, and we were strangers seated opposite one another at dinner, and we were talking about some disappointment about I don't know, a girl, a football match, I can't remember what it was, but he said, cheers, cheers. And I knew then that he would be a great friend, and in fact, he is still my best friend. Um, he's not called Peason, though, unfortunately. Um, because Grab is the head, is the Grab Grabber the head is, the, bu- is the school bully. Is the, oh, the school bully, and, is, and who's, the, who's the head boy? Because the head boy is, his father is very wealthy and brought, I mean, you can see all these, actually, even now, the characters, in, in the book, you see them in your class, it's yeah. Offington Thomas, he's very optimistic and, and yeah. goes around. I mean, Re- Wayne Rooney looks like he's been drawn by Ronald <laughs> Searle, doesn't he? That sort of potato <laughs> head with the yeah. tiny little Grab. eyes and the kind of little ears like that. It's, it's a purely... He's going to nut people instead yeah, of... Yeah, and stubble. He does, he's wonderful at doing spectacles and noses and pointy shoes and dogs with really nasty faces and humans with really yeah. nasty faces actually. He's got um, a nice line of grandmothers as well. Really. Yeah. It, it's just it's just utterly pleasurable and delightful, isn't it? Uh, and and sort of inexplicable to, to anybody other than an English person, I'd say, or a British person. I think so. So involves with your gateway drug, what uh, for for did that open a world of books for you? Not for ages actually. I was still keen on drawing until I was about fourteen. Um, <laughs> So I, you know, I read. I remember reading Jennings and Billy Bunter and a bit of bit of Blighton, but not with not with any great enthusiasm. I have to say, I was a very, very slow reader, and I came to read, read proper reading much later than probably anybody in this room actually. So what was it that tipped the tipped the balance and made you a reader? Um, I, what was it? Uh, it might be the next book actually. On, to be that, on that note, we should. Uh, we should pass on. I'm gonna. Ma- I'm gonna make you donate. Donate. Complete blood. Yeah. No, sorry. You must donate. Give. Give the gift of Molesworth. Who? There is the gift of Molesworth too. Something like that. I think there's a seat. Um, if I can get you the seat right in the middle, isn't there? There. There's one. I'm gonna get you to come up here, which is really embarrassing. Come to the front, please. <laughs> this is St. Custard's all over again, isn't it? Cheers, cheers. It's right in the middle there, there's a lovely seat waiting for you. There's that wonderful, there um, there's that wonderful picture of Molesworth coming from, um, walking away down the, um, from, uh, he's just been bowled in cricket and he's coming, he's, he's walking off, uh, off the cricket pitch and, and, the, and the line is, distance back to pavilion is 12,000 miles. Yeah. And it's, it's just that, it's the long walk, isn't it? Yeah, sorry about that, welcome anyway. So he's got a French, a French exchange, hasn't he, called um, Armand. He was six foot tall and helped his mother washing up and, and just looks at the food. <laughs> it's so good, you must read it, it's wonderful. Yeah, so, we, so, the, so, uh, so from, gate, from gate, sort of gateway drug, a little first, little experiment with smoking behind the bike sheds that was complete Molesworth, and then into your second book, which is Raffle. So this is, is this the gateway drug that got you this into This is reading? the first proper book, proper grown-up book, I think I read. I, and, and again, I was, I was quite old. I, mean, I was 12 years old. I was on holiday in Ilfracombe, Devon, in 1976. I bought the Penguin paperback of Raffles, and I was transported by it. Um, so um, anybody, who knows, does anybody know Raffles? Do you want to tell us a little bit about what what, what, Raff, what Raffles Raffles is? was invented by a man called E.W. Hornung, who was the... Um, brother-in-law of Arthur Conan Doyle and his Raffles and Bunny are the sort of, they're kind of like the B-side of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson basically, Um, 1899 to 1900 so it's sort of very late Victorian, early Edwardian and Raffles was, he lived rather near here actually, just around the corner in Albany, Um, he was three things, a man about town, Mayfair man about town he was the finest slow bowler English cricket had ever seen. And by night, he robbed the hostesses of Mayfair of their spoons. Yeah. And, and their jewels, and their yes. Um, he does it very elegantly, doesn't he? He does. He's the great, he's the amateur cracksman. And he only steals because he likes the thrill, he likes the, the daring and the danger of it. And, and in fact, he's much more dangerous and debonair than... than Holmes than Sherlock because 
I always find Sherlock slightly beyond belief in a way, and he never really grabbed me imaginatively at all. You could you could never put Benedict Cumberbatch in the role of Raffles. No, well, no, well, Raffles will always be for me the great, the inimitable Anthony Valentine, um, who died uh, not very long ago. Actually, um, he, he first became famous as a uh, the, uh, the bookie Joey Maddox in uh, Nicholas Rogue's film with uh, performance. Uh, but his great role, his brilliant role, was as as Raffles. He kind of, kind of slithers loosely around, doesn't he? Yes. Absolutely lounges, and they come they come to the Cafe Royal yeah. for um, some elegant drinking and tea and all that kind of stuff, and then yeah. nip off. And they're quite they're quite civilized thieves, though, aren't they? They don't they. Oh, I mean, more than civilized. I mean, super civilized. I mean, I I always had ideas about my station. Um, I you know I, I, I came from Liverpool, from a very lower middle class family, and you know I I grew up on some tough streets um, uh, for a while anyway um, but Raffles just transported me um, I, I wanted to wear topper and tails um, uh, to smoke Sullivan cigarettes in the Burlington Arcade to have rooms a set of rooms at Albany um, and, and generally just to swan around Mayfair as a, as a, as a man of leisure and as a dandy um, I got the cigarettes in the end, but I, and not much else. Not the, to not be the set of rooms at all. Um, but what I did do, uh, and and I was very pleased to be able to do, was um, I put a character in Freya called Nat Fane um, into Albany. So that was the next best thing, really. He he lives rather uh, loosely uh, and and much later than Raffles. This is in the nineteen fifties, mid fifties and sixties. He's a sort of yes. He's a sort of a, 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 a dandy. He's a spiritual heir of Raffles, I think. So you so you were in a uh, presumably a wet holiday in Ilford. <laughs> um, actually, no, no, it wasn't because it was the summer of nineteen seventy six, which oh, we all know yeah, was the hottest the summer, summer on record. So actually, I. I probably what sweated read, through the whole thing. Reading a book. Oh, oh God knows. God knows. <laughs> then you got you got books and then you got them hard. <laughs> but what was it? What was it about? What was it about Raffles that kind of made you think? Actually, I can see what this reading this is quite practical. I think it was the um, strange sort of formal prose. I mean, you, you, I'm I'm coming to prose now with without any expectation of of, of anything. I mean, I had not read any proper literature at all. Um, so I think it was the that slightly high-flown, slightly pompous Edwardian language that really appealed. Um, you know, you didn't you didn't sleep like a log in Raffles. You slept like a timber yard. You know, it was that it was that sort of slightly pompous, slightly laboured sort of jokiness. Um, but it was it felt. Glamorous, actually. I think it was the glamour of it that that, that appealed to me. Um, that there was this other world, and I love the idea of you know the the, the black burglar masks and the toppers and the diamond necklaces and the the jemmied safes and the mansions and the safes and the, the great escapes that escapes over the rooftops of Albany and it it, it just it just felt so kind of dangerous and glamorous and, and appealing to me. And actually all the, all the things that you want to be when you're 12. Apart from stealing, I never, I've never stolen anything in my it's life. Just, um, in, a, in a way the stealing is a bit of a... It's a bit, well, it, it doesn't... It's a bit it's of an excuse for kind of making them dangerous and rude. And yes. Bunny, oh, Bunny, yes, he's a close friend. Well, that was his other, yeah. Bunny's a much better um, sidekick than um, Watson. Watson. Watson, again, is just, he's, he's pretty much a device for Holmes's cleverness, isn't he? You know, he will play the kind of, the, the sort of, the, the, the dummy, essentially, the, the straight man to Holmes. Whereas Bunny actually was um, Raffles' fag at school. Um, again, you know, this is going back to Molesworth. All my public school choices. Maybe I'm just actually a sort of frustrated public school boy. Um, <laughs> But anyway, he fagged at school at Uppingham, in fact, for uh, for Raffles, Bunny Manders. He's a he's a bit hopeless and a bit but helpless. Well, he gets but into it because he's he's gambled. Exactly. He? He's uh, so the first story in Raffles is called The Ides of March. March, which I I still read with a thrill. Actually, um, it's when Ra uh, Bunny goes to Raffles' rooms in Albany after ten years of. of not knowing him, uh, Raffles has become famous as a, uh, an English bowler and as a gent about and he's time. a great cricketer, isn't he? And he's a great cricketer. And Bunny has basically fallen on hard times. There's 
a bill of sale on every stick of furniture in the flat. Um, and he basically appeals to Ruffles for help. Uh, his old, his old, you know, fag who basically throws himself on Raffles' mercy and Raffles takes him for a night out. And I won't tell you what happens, but it's one of the greatest nights out known to humanity. <laughs> it's quite something. On that note, we should... Um, uh, there you go, you got Come on. There we are. In fact, the copy, because I, uh, I got... The copy I read had all the stories in them because they go. There's loads of. Them. There were two. Well, there were two main ones. There was there was the Raffles the Amateur Cracksman and there was the Black Mask, yeah, which, is uh, which was late. Which was a sort of, it was a kind of, prequel, to. No, in fact, there were three. There's one where they where Raffles and Money actually go and prove their patriotic um, worth and actually fight out on the belt in the Second Boer War. <laughs> So they're not so bad after all, so even though they've been thieving their whole lives. Yeah, it's um, it's actually quite a, a kind of heroic um, comeback for them. In a right, way. I mean, right at the end of that, when they come in real proper, don't they? So we won't we won't spoil it. But if anybody would like a decent read, they're bored of Sherlock Holmes or just want the alternative, the B side. I've got to say, by the way, when when Helen asked me very kindly to do this uh, event, um, and she asked me to do six books, choose six books, which I wanted to talk about. Um, I know that she'd done it several times before, and so she might have been bored with certain choices coming up again and again. And I said, it's fine if you want to change one of these choices, any of these choices, apart from Raffles. <laughs> so that's my take-home message to you tonight, actually. Um, the, the Raffles is the one. You can just forget everything else. Um, you know, Raffles is the one. And, it, and what I love about Raffles, it does give you a fantastic clue I mean, you know, in, in, I mean, particularly the two, you know, the, your two latest books, Curtain Call and Frere, it, it leaks in in a really lovely way, that kind of raffishness. Does it, really? Well, I'm, I'm glad it does, because it does. The debonairness of people and that kind of the Mayfair vibe. vibe versus the kind of seaminess of Soho. Yes. Well, I love that high and low thing. I, I, I do love the idea that Mayfair and Soho are basically cheap by jowl. And one of them is terribly respectable and debonair and um, expensive, and the other is rather seedy, down at heel, but terribly exciting. Um, yeah, very, and in very fact, and, and and the Albany is just beautifully placed betwixt and between those things. The front gate of Albany looks out onto Piccadilly and St James, the, the club's respectability, whereas the back the back entrance onto Vigo Street take a right and you're basically into Mayfair. So yeah. it's basically, it's virtue and vice both ways there. Scuttle off and hobnob it with the uh, upper crust or we'll go back with the loose people. We're actually, so, so we're going to come on to you, uh, your next book, Brideshead Revisited. So uh, presumably Raffles had quite a good effect because you, like Charles Ryder and Sebastian Flight, went to Oxford to read English. Now you probably I didn't read English, actually. Yeah, no, you didn't read English, no. but I'm right to say you read Double Oxford. I did, did go to Oxford, yeah. Um, I, I actually read um, uh, classics uh, at Pembroke. Um, oh, so, uh, so all the gerunds and... Um, well, yes, Latin exactly, the escape of the gerunds, yes. Uh, um, very much so. Latin prep. A gerund cutting a gerund of social snobbery. Um, uh, it was... Yes, I, I remember reading Brighthead, and it was the first time I'd read a novel where I actually actively slowed down my reading because I couldn't bear it to end. Um, it was just one of those books that completely bewitched and enchanted me. Um, I don't, you know, I wasn't prepared for it really. It was, I suppose it was my, maybe the very, very first serious English novel I'd read. And I, I basically, I, I noticed uh, Andrew Motion, Professor Andrew Motion talking this week somewhere about how only, you know, writers all had a great English teacher. Well, I didn't have a great English teacher. I had a perfectly personable one. Um, it was quite civilised. But I never had any... No, I, I didn't have any teachers who were inspirational in that way at all. The person who I got my entire literary inspiration from was my mother, um, who, re who read a lot of mid-century novelists. So, Green, War, um, Kingsley Amis, and later... People like um, David Lodge, Malcolm Bradbury, um, Martin Amis. I basically got my entire reading map 
from my mother and and Brideshead, even more was her sort of second favourite novelist. So, um, so that's what I did. I read Brideshead Revisited, and I, you know, it was like sort of eating the chocolate bar, which you sort of try and save, you try and save it during the day, and you know you eat a square at a time, and then you sort of snaffle it all uh, because you can't resist. Yeah, you just have to do it all again. Um, so when did you meet? When did you? When did you first find uh, Brideshead? Um, well, the thing, I started reading it in 1981, so I was 17, um, and it just so happened that, well, two things happened. One, I was applying to Oxford. Two, um, the famous ITV serial, um, ITV serial 13 Parts, I think it was, came out in the Christmas of 1981, just when I'd applied. So the, the sort of, um, I think it's called synergy nowadays, but anyway, that was the, the stars, kind of, the, the, the sort of, line. yes, it was a sort of, um, the synchronicity of it was, was ideal in a way, because those Oxford passages, the first Oxford passages in Brideshead, still seem to me beautiful and magical in, 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 a, in a sort of, in a timeless way as well, because, you, you know, I still think about, when I walk down Merton Street, I still, still think of Charles Ryder bicycling down there and seeing the Indians coming out of church and, it, it, it's just one of those um, completely bewitching books, um, and the, the chapter is called, I think the whole section is called Et in Arcadia Echo, which, as any fool know, uh, <laughs> means, uh, you know, I too was in paradise. Um, and, and I still think of Oxford. I, I, I can't think of Oxford without thinking of, of Bright Head Revisited, and, and, and the two are so deeply entwined for me. And how, how was it? Did it measure up for you when you went to Oxford? How was it? We didn't have plovers eggs, unfortunately. Um, it was more like spam and sort of horrible sausage no, rolls. No, Blanche on the, you know, the, 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 the no. Well, that's, you see, Blanche is the funny one because um, he, he is another sort of Nat Fain reference here because he is a, a sort of the, the great Oxford dandy. And when I first read the book, as, as, as I remember, I thought he was just a malicious little queen, actually, wasn't he? Well, as you, when you read it again, you, you basically discover that, in fact, he is the novel's great sage, the great truth-teller. Um, and, and Ryder misses him terribly. He realises that he's met somebody actually very special. And a, a sort of, he's like a sort of unrepeatable box of tricks, Anthony Blanche. Um, they'll never see his like again. Um, and, and, and that really stayed with me when I was writing that thing for, for Freya. And, and actually that comes, the, I mean, Freya is at university the year after Brideshead is published. Okay, she goes at the very year, in fact. The very yes, year, yes, it's, 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 it's It was published in May 1945, so it was the month of, of the E-Day, actually, um, uh, Brideshead. Um, so Freya would have, could have read um, Brideshead. As it came out, and she writes um, one of her early pieces of journalism. Is it, I mean, it's, I'm not misremembering this. It's, she ghostwrites it for somebody. Kind of ghostwrites. Yes, yeah, she helps somebody write a, a, a write, write, write one of those very earnest pieces in Charwell about um, the 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 war in the modern novel, uh, which um, which sets her off in a way, and then somebody asks her to do a piece in her own uh, voice. It's, I mean, it's a, it's a really it's a really lovely a lovely piece when you read it in the in the book, and she talks about. How Anthony Blanche is, is the is the sage in it. She kind of gets that that point. Yeah, well, he is just this character who who sort of exerts quite a, a, an influence on on her and, and on her generation. Um, but like I said, I mean, it's a book that you actually you, you discover its its richness in in the in the rereading. I haven't actually read it for a, for a while. I, I, I in fact I mentioned it in Freya, and I I read the Et in Arcadia, the, the Oxford passages again, but I didn't read read the whole. The whole thing again because I, I can sort of hardly bear to it in a way. When, so when did you when did you last reread it? Because I do think it's one of those books that you. I, I think I I must have read it about ten years ago and I read it again after watching the amazing sort of John Morton John Morton did a thirteen part adaptation of of um, of Brideshead. Which is all on YouTube. If you it, it, it's all on YouTube and it's also it's like probably the most faithful adaptation of any novel ever, isn't it? It's like, it's got almost every comma in it, you know, it's a sort of, every sentence is, is there. It's 13, it's 14 hours television for a, a, what, a 300 page book, and it's almost like they sort of stretch it. The Venice episode alone lasts, it, it seems to sort of like do a paragraph of the book. 
I mean, it's a war. I mean, it's a big watershed in television drama, wasn't it? It's always yeah. become, it becomes the benchmark of TV drama. And it's Before just... that, well, when it's very funny you should say that because when you look back at TV drama pre nineteen eighty one, pre Brideshead, it looks so tinny. The sets look so cheap and and sort of jerry built. Um, I. I I also love um, Testament of Youth by Vera Britton, and I, uh, my wife and I got, I think we got the DVD out of that and watched it again. And it looks so paltry, it looks so grey and unnatural and sort of weedy in a, in a, in a way. Whereas Brighter was just, you know, the production value on it was just so astonishingly it good. Mm, it really was, it was sumptuous. As, as sumptuous as War's Prose is, actually. Yes. It's really Indeed, well, and, and that's why it's suitable. Lovely casting too. Jeremy Irons. Who likes Jeremy Irons? Well, even then, even then, I thought that Jeremy Irons and Anthony Andrews were both about thirty when they were filming Brighthead, and they were way too old for it, weren't they? <laughs> I mean, they were just so ridiculously sort of old. Well, they wore the clothes beautifully. That was the thing. They wore the clothes beautifully, and they floated around the, or, the botanical old, gardens old very languidly. Yeah. Again, it didn't really matter, but you know they didn't actually have to do much sort of makeup in that because Charles Ryder looked sort of 30, 40 in, in, in that. Um, it's wonderfully cast. Nicholas Grace as Anthony Blanche is wonderful. John Gielgud as um, Mr. Ryder, Charles's father, is superb. Um, Claire Bloom, again, yes. Um, don't ever get DVD of the film out. Um, did, anybody see, did anybody see the film when it came out? It's hopeless. Um, the most brilliant book I ever, I think. In fact, it's brilliant to see something. I, want, I, want, I wanted to ask you when you reread it, and I wanted to, because I wondered if it was a different book when you read it 10 years ago from the book that you read at 17. Well, it, it must have been, because I, I, I remember just, you know, like devouring it slowly and agonizingly when I first read it, and I didn't feel that way again when I, when I reread it. I thought, I thought it was possibly a little florid when I, when I read it again. Thought it was uh, a kind of um, it's possible it's slightly overwritten. It's a bit too lavish and a bit too um, there's quite there's a bit too much juice in it in a in a way. Um, but it's still you know and it's a great book for a young person to read. I think because I also because I think it's a great book. It's a different book when you're when you're older because it's a very when you're young you read it and it's all beautiful and glamorous and you know dreaming spires and teddy bears and plabber's eggs and incredible banquets and getting thrown out of mm. being sick through people's windows, which is, I'm presuming was your Oxford experience. Exactly <laughs> that, actually. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then I think later it becomes, you know, it's, a very, it's, a, it's a very bitter book, secondly, when you're, when you're older. Charles yes, narrates it. He's, that's right. He's, I think, 39 when he's in the, he's in the war. Actually. Well, it's, real, it's a real innocence and experience book, isn't it? So yes, he is, he sort of he finds Brideshead, it's, it's a massive flashback book, isn't it? Yeah, really? exactly. he, fi he finds Brideshead, this great old country house that he used to love and gamble in with his, his dearest friends. Um, I should also mention, by the way, that, that the book was catnip to me because um, I was at my most holy moly, I was brought up a Catholic. Um, so his agonized friendship with the, the Flight family and, and his initial resistance to Catholicism meant a lot to me. Yeah. It, 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 that was a, another aspect of the book which I found. You know, Graham Greene and even more were the two great Catholic novelists. So it answered a certain yearning in me, I think, as well. Well, it's wonderful. Who, who hasn't read it? <sighs> I don't want to give it to you. <laughs> The great Oxford novel. Um, <laughs> no, it's quite, it's got, it's quite warm, isn't it? Mind that candle. She said, she said like your mom. <laughs> and we're back again. We're back, we're back again. We're going to move, but we'll move, we'll move, we'll move away from the, um, the beautiful big houses of Brighthead. Um, and your your next choice is George is George Eliot. It's Middlemarch. So tell us about tell us about Middlemarch. Um, again, uh, I I owe my urge to 
to read to read serious books, to read proper books, to my to my mother, um, who um, who had two. She she read a lot of poetry, but but she also read a lot of uh, of novels. Um, and her two favourite novels, um, I eventually got around to reading, and I, I knew what they were for years and years. They were always on our on our shelves. Um, one of them was Catch Twenty Two by Joseph Heller, which I read, and I absolutely loathed. I just couldn't stand I it. I hate it so much. And we had a massive argument about it, I recall, and I just said I can't. But you know, I, I could barely get through it actually. But the other book, her other sacred text, um, was Middlemarch. And the size of Middlemarch slightly put me off, actually, to be honest. It's a 900-page book, and I just thought, I'll get around to it one day. And it took me about, until I was, I may, maybe a 29, 30, I was when I read it. And I'm, I'm glad I sort of held on, in a way, because it's such a rich book. It's so, it's got such, intelligence and depth and complexity it's like it's like clearing the whole pudding trolley in one go isn't it <laughs> it's it? just like eating everything and you, feeling, you don't feel too well no because you, you, you just you just feel completely nourished exactly you don't feel sick you just think let's have another trolley yeah. you know it's just but it's a wonderful it's a wonderful um distillation of everything that's great about the victorian novel there's nothing like it there's nothing like it in dickens or Trollope, or, or or any of the big ones like Thackeray. Um, it's just one of the. It's 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 a unique book to me. And weirdly, I mean, I, I don't actually know an awful lot else by George Eliot. I've read I've, I've read maybe three other novels by her, but this is the one, and this is the book that made me think that that the novel was possibly the great form. I used to be very snobbish about film. I used to think film was the great art great medium. Well, you were, I mean, you were the independent film critic, so it was... That's true, that's true, but, but you know, you the folly of youth. Um, <laughs> I, I learned the, I learned my mistake. I, I, learned, you know, I, I learned the error of my ways. Um, this is just, um, it's just an extraordinary vision of a small English town. It's a historical novel. It was written in 1870-71, but it's actually set in, um, it's around the poor laws, the Paul Laws yeah, of 1830, 1831, I think. A Midlands town, um, an ordinary small community, but George Eliot investigates this back to front, up and down. It's the. It's got everything. It's it's about the rich and the poor. It's got tragic and comic. It's got vicious and virtuous. It has absolutely everything. Its its capacity is infinite. This book, isn't it? And I, I don't even feel like I'm exaggerating saying that. It's because this is another book. When you reread it, you find out something completely different about it. Well, there's. I mean, there was. Um, it's not just you that loves it either. I mean, it was voted by non by the Commonwealth. I think it was a big, big survey by the BBC. Who you know who wants to know um, what people who were not British thought was the best novel in, in written in English. And Middlemarch is number one. Virginia Woolf calls it the only novel in English for grown-ups. So, which is which is a great thing. But the, I mean, the main drive. I mean, it's a beautiful, 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 very devout. Speaking of kind of um, of religious faith, a woman called Dorothea. Dorothea. And Dorothea is also a, a remarkable character in that she is one of the very few representations in English literature in all English novels who makes moral goodness interesting. She's never boring or sanctimonious, even though she is this incredibly virtuous and kind person. They say happiness writes white, but virtue writes white as well, quite often. Um, and she, she's one of the great heroines in, um, in the novel. And she also is, unfortunately, um, one half of the most terrible marriage in so all of English literature. It's a devastatingly bad marriage. I mean, she's George Eliot's so clever about <laughs> on relationship. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, there's a, there's a we won't we won't give too much away if you're going to read this, but she basically marries uh, a scholar called Casabon, who's much older than her, who is writing one of the least 
promising books in all the history of books called The Key to All Mythologies. And it's chilling for any writer, this, um, who's ever been stuck on a book. Any writer, maybe people in the audience are trying to write a book or have written a book or, or are still trying to write a book. But it's one of the most chilling warnings about creativity. His, his person, he's been writing it for years. And Dorothy, Dorothea believes in him and thinks that he's going to do this. She thinks he's this great man. Really and does. the phrase, the scales fell from her eyes, <laughs> could almost be invented for her, really. Uh, and it takes a long time for her to come round to this. But when she does, it is one of the most devastating turnarounds in all of fiction. Uh, and it's brilliant. It's much more interesting in a way than the other terrible marriage in the book, which is between Lydgate and Rosamond. Lydgate is a great, ambitious doctor, medical pioneer. And he marries this very pretty, young, flibbity-gibbet, um, who turns out to be an absolute monster, a kind of a pretty, a prettified monster, doesn't she? Um, so there are terrible warnings in this book about, about matrimony, about throwing in your lot with somebody who you think that you know, but in fact that you, you don't know, and what can happen to you. It's not just about marital unfulfillment, it's about professional and personal unfulfillment too. And, and he actually keeps you going with it for 900 pages. Oh yeah, absolutely, yeah. Whilst you're... I yeah, mean, I mean, and there are so many kind of minor characters, you know, I mean, I've not even mentioned, you know, Fred Vincy and Mark Mary Garth and... <laughs> Um, so well popular. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's tons and tons of little satellites around this town, um, all contributing to this amazing sense of, uh, you know, a living organism, a, a community that's just alive and are, 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 is in a transition of a, a, a transitional period of history as industrialization moves in. But this is just so subtly done. It's not. It, she never sort of. You never feel the clang of, no, of no, history here at all. It's just softly, softly, and it it's just beautifully done. And I, I'm, I'm totally in awe of this book. And, I, and, I, and it's one of those things that you know that you will never, ever even come near as a writer. And yet, it's a shining beacon to you as well. So, when, I mean, if you say so you were 20, be 29 when you, when you read it? Yeah. Because you went, and what I wanted to know is when you, when you started writing, I mean, writing, you know, or thinking you wanted to write fiction, because that, didn't publish your first novel until after you'd been the Oh, I was pastor. about 94 when I began <laughs> writing fiction. Um, I, I, I didn't write fiction um, until I was, start writing so until I was 41, 42. So how did all that, all this reading um, coalesce into, into being a writer? What was um, I had in my hand a book um, which has never been actually seen in public before. Um, and in it, a, a rather paltry selection of quotations which I've taken down over the last few years. Um, and in a way, it's, I mean, it's, 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 it's quite sad. When I read a book, I'm always terrified that I'll forget what it was like. You know, if, if I see a quotation that's brilliant, if I don't write it down, I'll have forgotten it by the next week. So that's what I do in this book. And I kept this book for just the moment when I might actually start um, writing uh, so it fiction. Was kind of, it was bubbling and you. It was, it was bubbling in a way, uh, yeah. But like a, like a rather bad stew. Um, but it was, you know, it was there. I never had an ambition to write a, a, a novel until I was about sort of 40. So what changed? What happened? What made you take that leap? Um, possibly because I thought I could do it. Um, it wasn't, even though I joke about it, I was a Booker Prize judge in 2006, 10 years ago, which is a great experience. I really, really enjoyed, enjoyed my time. I enjoyed the people I, I, I judged with, misjudged with. Um, but it, it, I, I joke about sort of writing my first novel straight after that, which I did. It wasn't because I thought these novels are terrible. It's just that I thought, I think I know how to do it now. That was the difference. Um, and until then, I'd been a journalist um, for 20 years. Uh, 
And a journalist is a sprinter, essentially, so I had to do a, a film column every week for a newspaper and I used to re review books. And it was deeply enjoyable, but it never really satisfied. It was like snacking, whereas um, trying to write a novel, you know, it felt like you went out on a really long run and actually it's more enjoyable than you might think. Well, what's really interesting about, about, not, about having waited, I think, and having you know, built yourself up with uh, nourishing novels like George Eliot is, is that you, I mean, you've, you've been five novels in, in ten years. Actually, of the, kind of the kind of literary novel that you write is quite, it's quite prolific. I, I think it's because you haven't got a mobile phone. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, New Grub Street, um, George Gissing. I'm sorry that I haven't got the most recent vintage one, which you've written in the foreword. Um, but this is this is this, this is the story of of people trying to make a living from from writing. Isn't yes. it? Tell us tell us why you why you've chosen New Grub Street. I know you love Gissing. Um, there are some writers, you know, you 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 seem to wait your whole life for discovery of a writer whose voice you know you instantly identify with and you feel lucky sometimes when you do um, and for me George Gissing um, is that writer um, he had a desperately unhappy life uh, he, he lived to the age of 46 before he died of consumption but he managed to write 22 novels and many short stories um, this is just one of the great novels, uh, it's from 1891, about money and marriage in lower middle class Victorian London. But it's an absolutely unsurpassed novel about creativity, about writing, about how to earn a living from writing. It's the, the basic tension of the book is the noble vocation of creativity set against the brute necessity of having to earn a living from it. It was a hot topic then, and I mean, it's an even hotter topic hot now. now. I'm mean, just thinking of the independence having placed its shut its printed. Exactly. Well, my old, yes, that was my old, my old stable was the independence, um, which I basically grew up with. I, I, I came to London in 1986 uh, from college, and that was the year, uh, October 86, was the the moment the independent launched and i was very lucky because i just happened to write a letter um i had done a little bit of reviewing here and there but i wrote a letter to the then lit ed um sebastian folks you may have heard of him um and he very kindly uh wrote back and said you can review this book on spec and so i did and he printed it and from then i i I started writing a bit more, and of course, as soon as you see your name in print, you become sort of, well, you realize that that's what you want to do, and seeing your name, maybe you had that as well, you know, seeing your name for the first time in print. Only on my the... own website. <laughs> 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 well, that's fair yeah, enough. Well, anybody could be famous yeah. now on the website, um, but not in proper, but it's very heavy, I mean, it must be very heavy, having a byline, your first byline must be... When you see your name in yes, when you see your name in print, it's it's it's, it's the most remarkable um, rush of excitement and um, weird ambition and and all sorts of kind of you know grand ideas that you know you may not be able to measure up to, but not nonetheless, just to see that your your name has been in print is is the most validating thing. Anyway, this book is about people who write uh, and it's it's essentially um, the story of a simultaneous rise and fall um, Edwin Reardon is the middling novelist he wants to be great doesn't he about yeah um, he's 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 written three or four books that have been quite successful but he then loses his confidence and loses his belief in himself but he clings to the love of his wife Amy um, and that's the only thing that keeps him going their great friend Jasper Milvane is a journalist he's hack journalist who writes dross knows he writes dross but is very good at playing the market and he he ingratiates himself with sort of influential 
patrons. So there's the failing man and there's the coming man. The fact that they're friends makes it even more agonizing in a way because you've got a sort of you've got a sort of rise and fall story going on simultaneously. And around this center are various publishers, editors, authors. There's even a literary agent. There's, a, there's almost the first appearance of a, a newfangled literary agent called Welpdale in this book. And he's just one of the great minor comic characters. Incredibly enthusiastic. In fact, agenting just hasn't changed at all. It was like built right there. Nothing has changed about no, this book. No, it's not. I mean, it's it's incredibly modern. It's, th this book is 120-odd years old now, and it is so modern. It is frighteningly modern. All those, all those debates about how on earth do you make writing pay. I mean, Milvain says, literature's a trade. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's still the author's thought, isn't it's it? It's still, it is, it's still the truth. Um, I mean, how do, you, how do you find that, that kind of, you know, the, mar the market compared to... Well, I mean, I, I mean, I, I just happened to. I mean, I'm not really a journalist anymore. I, I was, um, I was very well paid for twenty odd years by the Independent. I was lucky. Um, I was a freelance journalist that was on contract, um, and you hope it will last, and you think it might last, and it didn't last um, for for me and for many, many others. Um, um, my my wife Rachel still um, working for the Observer. Still, you know, she's well employed um, and, and thank God because you know we might be on the bones of our behind otherwise. Because <laughs> I was, I mean, I was, I was joking, making a joke a bit before about not having a mobile phone but you're, it seems to me that many, the, the pressure on authors to have a big social media following to be always kind of putting things out there to, have, know. You know, to have a blog. Well I mean if I started, I'd, you know, who would want to start in journalism now but if you did you would you would be doing something completely different from, from what I did when I started out in 1986. You would have to, you know, yeah, you'd go on Twitter, yeah. you'd have some great social media. I'm not on any of these things, but, you know, you would basically be selling yourself in quite a mercantile way. Um, frightening to me, I, you know, I, I feel lucky in a way that I came to it when I did, because I couldn't, I couldn't hack it now. It I mean, it's a, it's, the, desperate, it's a desperate, difficult uh, environment for me to create really, really similar to the environment of the late 19th century. Yes, yeah. I mean, there was, he was um, the editor of the Huffington Post. I'm going to Ariana. No, no, actually, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, 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 a I think it's the British editor. It's a, it's a man. Right. No idea. But he said something like, I wouldn't pay my writers because it would corrupt them. I mean, it's, it's a, does anybody remember that? And it and it's that's the that's the environment in which in, in which journalism is is trying to flourish. I know, and it's it's strange though, isn't it? Because you know, no nobody really thinks they're going to make any money from writing anymore, and hardly anyone will. And yet, I, I read a you know, you keep reading surveys, and I know surveys in newspapers aren't real, terribly reliable, but one did struck me about a year ago. I read it in the Times that they they canvassed a number of people about what their ideal job was. And something like 60% of the respondents said that they wanted to be writers. Well, it's the last, I mean, speaking of, going back to religious vocation, Anthony, Professor Anthony Clare, before we died, always talked of uh, writing as the last religious vocation, the last calling that people were still called to be authors. Yes. It was a, a need in people to do that. And because it's a, vo a vocation, people think that they don't have to pay. Yeah. <laughs> you um, be a starving priest. Yeah. And, you know, in a way, Jasper Milway in, in New Grub Street, even though he is, he behaves contemptibly and, and is yeah, quite a snake in the grass, but he at least understands what is yeah. needed. You know, he he's, 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 a, he's a very modern creature. He, he understands how to promote himself and to promote his words. And, you know, he and Amy are right. Writing is a trade. It's also a profession, but it's, it's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a sort of basic trade. But I think Reardon and his unbelievable grinding properties might suggest it's not an art alone. No, that's true. Um, it, it's, it's also, yes, one of the saddest books about poverty. It's, it's really, I mean, next to Our Spoons came from Woolworths, it's, and George Orwell's Down and Out in Paris and London. It's, it's one of the three great novels in literature about being really poor. 
anyway, if anybody wants to write but is thinking they're going to make money out of it, read this because it'll really put you off. It's, it's quite, it, it, it's quite chastening, isn't it? As a, as a, as a read. But also very, very, very funny. I mean, there's a bit we've got to get. Well, I want to read this. What's got to your last book? But there's a brilliant bit. I was just telling Anna from Tatler, where um, who I can't the character that um, edits a magazine called Chitter Chatter, and he decides to make it call it chit chat because he's realised that people isn't that well done? Well done, yes. Because people will only read short snippety bits. Exactly. This is eighteen ninety one. And Milvane says, imagine what we could do with the tap. We could call it tittle tattle we'd treble the circulation <laughs> over now. <laughs> Which I thought was very fun. Anyway, I'm please please who would who would Would like anybody it? like this book? Ah oh, there we go. Bestowed bestowed on you. Let read it as a warning. So rather sadly, we're going to come to your last book, but also rather happily because it's the absolutely blissful Elizabeth Taylor in a summer season. Who who knows Elizabeth Taylor? Excellent. We have we have some, and um, I think some some of some people in the audience know her very well indeed. Um, tell us tell us why you've chosen Elizabeth Taylor. This lovely salon, which Helen has invited me to, is called. The books that build me, um, but what we all know about builders is they never quite finish the job, um, <laughs> and I never consider myself as a reader or a writer the finished article. Um, I hope that I will still be reading new stuff, discovering new stuff, um, and the writer who I feel so grateful for discovering um, in the last three years, only in the last three years is Elizabeth Taylor. Um, she, she's, she suffered, actually, um, not surprisingly, from being almost exactly contemporaneous with the other Elizabeth Taylor. Um, um, in fact, Sarah Waters tells a story of how um, she went on the, uh, she, she applied to some shop for a, a novel by Elizabeth Taylor, uh, or a book by Elizabeth Taylor, and they gave her um, the, the album of National Velvet, you know, I mean, it's like, so it's, it's that pathetic, it's that tragic in a way. Um, she was a very modest um, sort of, uh, she was a housewife, she lived in Berkshire, uh, she had three kids, um, she was very quiet, she never made a fuss, she, she was never really given her due, she was quite well reviewed in her life, but she had a quite short life, she died at 62 of cancer in 1975. Um, and yet, she is one of these sort of writers who, as soon as you read her, you realize you are absolutely in the hands of a master. Um, it's no exaggeration to say this woman is a modern Jane Austen. Um, she's got the same, her prose is, is rather Austen-esque. She's, she's, it's very formal and nuanced um, and quite severe. And her observation is also like Austen in that it's wry, it's humorous, it's quiet, and it's terrifyingly beady. There is nothing lost on her at all. Um, she is so acute about people, about the way people behave. Um, and this is, it's from 1961, so it's the, it's the story, like many of her stories, it's set in the Thames Valley, it's set among middle-class people in middle-class community and it's about a marriage um, between um, a rich widow called Kate and a much younger man um, which is it's controversial at that time maybe it still is now um, called Dermot who's rather vague and he's uh, feckless and he's also a bit of a gambler um, but they love each other passionately. They love each other passionately, and in fact, there's a bit of sex in there as well, it isn't is, there? It's quite, it is quite a sex book mm. in its quiet way. Um, but you, but this was your first experience of, of Elizabeth Taylor as well, am, am I right? I, I had never I had never read her before, and, and and was aware of her as being one of those great those great novelists of that of that period, and um, and she's got big fans. I mean, so. Elizabeth Jane Howard, who's an author I love. And, and Kingsley Amis, in fact, who didn't have much time for women or women novelists, um, really admired really Elizabeth Taylor. And I think ran really randomly earlier, David Baddiel loves her. He describes her as the missing link between Jane Austen and Philip Roth, 
it's like you kind of, I mean, it's a bit bonkers. I mean, it's a very David Bedell thing to say, but you can kind of sit. But she's so, she's so subtle. She gets you around the, she creates this very enclosed environment, doesn't she? Yes. Every Every book has its own little physical space. Yes. And That's right, yeah. She's, she, just because your canvas is small and your, your, your milieu is small, it doesn't mean to say that you're going to write a small book. Um, Jane Austen never, you know, travelled very far as we know, um, and yet there are worlds created, whole worlds created in her tiny little social milieu, and that's what that's what Elizabeth Taylor does um, amazingly well. Um, she's the middle classness is is an irrelevance. She writes about men and women who love and fail and misunderstand one another. Um, in tragicomic ways that, that absolutely pierce your heart. She, I mean, it's, it's extremely heart-piercing and also very funny. I mean, it's a very British kind of So right, exactly. Writer. I mean, again, yes, it's, it's, it's a very English type of novelist, isn't it, really? And that's the other thing that, in fact, when I was thinking about these books, I, I, when I was in my sort of mid-twenties to mid-thirties, I read actually nothing but American <coughs> fiction, and yet I've got no American fiction in this list at all and I feel in a way it might be because I've become a writer myself that I find English things so much more vital and inspirational and enlivening actually than, than outside of our own country any American fiction for instance which I tend not to read much of it anymore. It's kind of slightly more like, it's, more, it's, it's, a, it's a less familiar world, isn't it? I mean, mm. the London in your books and, and, then, and Liverpool in the earlier ones, and I think after those, they are characters, the place is a character in themselves. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's a sort of, it's the old sort of adage that you write about what you know, um, but what you know isn't necessarily what's going to end up on the page. In fact, you find out what you didn't know uh, quite often. You, you, It's a sort of search. I'm writing a book at the moment, and there's one bit of it that I just can't get right. There's a plot point on it. And I'm quite glad in a way that I'm doing this because it would be terribly dull if everything was sort of mapped out for you in writing. Um, you like to have things that actually will arrive spontaneously or that you can just sort of suddenly see the light and realize, ah, yes, that's how it's going to work. And sometimes it seems inevitable when it ends up on the page, but actually it comes, it comes through hard thinking and plotting and planning and well i was i mean i was interested in something that you were you uh you said about your own your own writing about hillary mantle says that for writers character don't think about plot think about characterization i think that's a brilliant thing that she said actually um when i when i first started writing an, a novel um my, my first novel was published about seven eight years ago um one of the things i really worried about um, was was how to plot a book, um, and it's still it's still a problem. It's not one you ever solve. But when I when I was writing Curtain Call, for the first time, I realised that Hilary Mantel's advice is the best. It's don't think about plot, think about character. If you make your characters properly and you follow them through and you observe their motivations and what makes them tick, and how they speak and even how they walk and how they dress, if you concentrate on character, the plot will make itself because you have followed exactly what they're doing. The, the character flows from the plot. And, and Elizabeth Taylor is the master of that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, it, it, after a while, plot and character, you hope, will become sort of enmeshed in such a way that you can't you know, tell which, which came first. But character is, I think, the, the beating heart of the novel. So if you had to pick one one thing that Elizabeth Taylor taught you as a writer, what what would that be? Well, it's funny you should ask me, um, because I just happen to have a quotation here. I am I am the bunny to your reference. Um, you so are, you so are. <laughs> now this again is rather chilling. It's not from it's not from In the Summer Season. It's from another novel by Elizabeth Taylor called The View of the Harbour, which was um, a popular one of, of hers. It's from uh, late 1940s and she's also very good about um, the again about people who are writers and artists or painters and musicians she's very good on the creative impulse um, 
And there's a novelist in this book, A View of the Harbour, called Beth, who has this incredibly piercing insight as to <coughs> her location and what it means and whether she can possibly go on with it. And it's just a very short little quotation, but if, you'll, if you don't mind listening. Um, I'm not a great writer. Whatever I do, someone else has done it before and better. In 10 years' time, no one will remember this book. The libraries will have sold all of their grubby copies of it secondhand, and the rest will have fallen to pieces, gone to dust. And even if I were one of the great ones, who, in the long run, cares? People walk about the streets, and it is all the same to them if the novels of Henry James or Jane Austen were never written. They could not easily care less. No one asks us to write. If we stop, who will implore us to go on? Well, I think I might implore you to go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you. I'm very glad. And, 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 and it's so nice, in fact, to, to be able to see people who, you know, are, 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 are bothered to turn up and actually maybe enjoy reading still. Because please, please don't stop. I love, I love prayer. I can't wait for the next one. Anthony Quinn, thank you very, very much. Thank you.